I'm Laura Zam, and this is Sexual Healing Central. I am here today with Abby Maslin, and she is going to be talking to us about her fabulous book, Love You Hard. Abby is going to give us tips about how to brave intimacy after tragedy, trauma, or change. I'm so happy to have Abby here. Welcome, Abby. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So, Abby, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a resident of Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill. I am juggling lots of hats and lots of roles at the moment as an author, a writer, um, a public school teacher, and the mother of two. I'm also a speaker in the wellness and caregiving communities, um, and specifically in the brain injury community, which is you know the intersection with my memoir, I Love You Hard. Um, this book is about our family's journey through a period of huge and utter transformation following my husband's um, traumatic brain injury in 2012. Yeah. And can you tell us what happened in, in 2012? Yeah. You know, in 2012, eight years ago, my husband and I were still in the newlywed phase. We've been married for three years. We were living here in our neighborhood of Washington, D.C. And um, he was walking home one evening from a baseball game um, and was stopped by three young men who robbed him of his wallet and cell phone. But they beat him on the head with a baseball bat and left him for dead afterwards. Um, So he, by some miracle, survived eight hours on the street that night, but, you know, overnight our lives were changed. He was taken to our local hospital where he underwent multiple brain surgeries. And I was told that he had a very small chance of living through his injuries. And then, you know, after days of kind of that uncertainty, a a very small chance of regaining any kind of quality of life. And so at 29 and 30 years old, that was just about the most unexpected life turn we could imagine, um, particularly as parents of a two-year-old at that point. But it was really the gateway for a period of transformation that I've learned to become incredibly grateful for. You know, our tragedy, our triumphs over those years that followed have taught me more about how to live than any other period of life. Um, and, And so it was really important to me to to gather that wisdom of those transformations, gather some of the, you know, the nuggets of resilience that we came to lean on during that time and and put it in a book for others who are not necessarily going through, you know, a traumatic brain injury, but through any kind of major life transformation. It is such a powerful story. And I I did want to just hold up the book again if I can. And it's beautifully written, just such a beautifully written book. And uh, and ultimately, you know, so in, so inspiring. And Abby and I have talked at length about about our respective journeys and about how marriage needs to go beyond the fairy tale, and that we we think that we're getting one thing, <laughs> and we're we're not necessarily seeing what's really there, or things change and you know take take a wild turn and. We need to learn how to how to love someone hard with all of ourselves and in a way that takes into account that reality. And I, I just can't say enough about the book and ab- about how how this story is is so helpful to people. So 
I think people want to know where are things now, right? With you and your family and your husband's health. Yeah. So, I mean, it's important for people to understand um, the kind of injury that my husband sustained, you know, a traumatic brain injury. It's really a different diagnosis than some other kind of illness, than a chronic illness or even a terminal illness. You know, this is a this is an injury that affects everybody in such individual ways. And so what it has meant for our relationship, for our partnership is that I overnight became married to a stranger. And in a sense, so did he, because, um, because this required me to change so much as well, you know, in order to meet the challenges that were in front of us. So, um, he was very lucky to survive. As I mentioned earlier, he survived with limitations and disabilities of different kinds, uh, physical disabilities and, and cognitive limitations. But, you know, he was really very much preserved in the essence of who he was. However, he was also trapped in his brain. Um, and so for many years, our journey revolved around helping him regain his speech, which of all of his disabilities and limitations was probably the most prominent and just the most difficult to navigate on a day-to-day basis. Um, so you, you know, you know your partner intimately, or at least you feel like you do when you get married or you enter in a long-term partnership. But when that person no longer has access to language, so much of the foundation on, on upon which you connect just shatters. And so for us, it was not only a period of putting our lives back together and helping him regain his physical health, but figuring out psychologically how we were going to fit together again um, and how we were going to communicate um, and have our individual needs and desires met with such incredible limitations in front of us. So, you know, we are eight years out now uh, and countless hours of... <laughs> hospitalizations and therapies. And I think if you probably ran into us on the street, you would have no idea that this happened to us. We are still happily married, albeit living during a very stressful pandemic with two children at home now. Um, But we have really had to learn so much about communication at the times that it's not easy, right? We had a very intuitive relationship from the time we met. We were very young. We were 22. We both just got each other so easily. And and his brain injury and the aphasia that impacted his language took that away from us. So these past years have been about being very creative, uh, being very vulnerable, and figuring out how to stay connected in different ways, ways that maybe you aren't sold in a movie or in a romance novel, but ways that ultimately get to the heart of who we are and what we need out of this human life and from our partners. Yeah, I'm wondering if you said that you had that intuitive connection with him. And I'm wondering if you if you learn more about him during this, learned another whole other um, yeah. sides of him that you, you didn't know before. Well, you know, the the book is called Love You Hard because I think the message that I got growing up from all of the culture that I consumed, which was that love was supposed to be easy. And it really was easy. Uh, When I met my husband, TC, we were 22. We met at a bar. We locked eyes. We fell in love. (laughs) We were never separated, you know, a moment after that. You know, we survived a couple of years of long distance, you know, while we were in graduate school. Um, And then, you know we we got married and we were still in that easy place but that sense of intuition 
you know, like being able to read somebody's mind, being able to predict what they're going to do. I mean, that is just shattered by a brain injury, right? So I felt like I knew TC, you know, in and out. And, and I still do. But what I learned during this period of working, you know, toward a, maintaining our relationship together, but without language, what I learned was that so much of what defined him was not his abilities. He is one of those obnoxious people who is so good at everything the first time he tries it. You just want to kill him because you're like, that's not fair. You know, he's the kid who taught himself how to play the guitar, um, you know, just a natural athlete, all those things. You know, I thought that is what made him who he was. That was my idea of, you know, his strength. And then I'm witnessing him, you know, no longer able to walk, no longer able to talk, no longer able to say his name, pick up our son, do any of these things, but his determination to get back those skills or to get back whatever he could. That was what I learned from him was that that was the essence of who he was. His determination to stand back up, to try it, to be able to block out any nonsense about what society might be judging him for, what they might think of a disabled man, and just to get up and work the hell out of the day and and try to accomplish what he could. I found that to be so not just, you know, admirable, but wildly attractive, you know, that is the essence of who he is. And so I learned so much about his strength through his struggles, not through what was easy, but through those struggles. Um, And so I feel like that was probably the most valuable thing I I could have witnessed um, to teach me about who he is in his soul. And it, it could only have happened through an event that took all the easy stuff away from us, you know, and, and only left us with hard options. The podcast, you know, is called Sexual Healing Central and, and it's, a, it's a big umbrella. I want it to be that way and I, I, because I, I really want to talk about all these many, many journeys toward wholeness, toward connection, toward mm-hmm. pleasure, because we're all coming from different places and we've been displaced or disconnected from those things for because of circumstances thrust upon us because of of things that might have happened in our relationships etc when i say sexual healing is there anything that you feel like maybe in this context you want to add or does do you think that that covers it for you no i think I think there's a lot that is unsaid and undialogued um, in the caregiving community, um, which is a community I found myself at a very young age. And sex is definitely part of that. And intimacy is part of that. And there's this sort of invisible struggle that happens, you know, when one person in a partnership becomes ill, you know, whatever that illness is, it definitely changes the sexual dynamic and it changes the type of intimacy that you're experiencing with that partner. I felt so much shame at the beginning of this caregiving journey that those feelings of sexual attraction just weren't present right away. And this feels ridiculous to say eight years out because look at what I was managing. You know, it's absolutely absurd that that was even a pressure that I experienced, an external pressure. But because there isn't dialogue about, you know, working through chapters of caregiving or working through chapters of transformation of any kind, there's just all you're left with is the pressure of what you see, you know, in your culture of television and and movies and, and books. And that 
sometimes is very misleading and really kind of sets unrealistic expectations for how people should feel. And all those shoulds are just more misery that no human, particularly a human going through some kind of difficult chapter needs. So I was just really eager, you know, at the beginning of TC's injury to read anything that would show me there was a future for us, that there could be a happy ending, that I might find my way back to those feelings for him. You know, that it was normal that I didn't necessarily feel that way at the beginning. And um, not a lot of not a lot of authors, not a lot of speakers willing to talk on that. And I think that it's beginning to change. I was really very grateful to eventually discover the the genius of Esther Perel, <laughs> who taught me so much and normalized so much of the experience that I was having. You know, when you are in the position of being responsible for somebody else's life, you know, not just their meals and their hygiene, but like every little thing, which I was at the beginning um, and actually for quite a long time at the, you know, in, in TC's rehabilitation, there is no distance. There is no separation. There is no, there is no place for desire to live. Um, and so TC and I were really fortunate to kind of come to some wisdom about a year after his injury um, that told us we needed to be apart, not necessarily to separate in any kind of, you know, big, impactful way, but to, to live under the same roof, but pursue our own individual healing journeys. And because we were able to do that, and that looked very different for each of us, we were able to find that distance that we needed to be on our own. So we didn't feel necessarily, well, I didn't need to feel responsible for him. I'm not sure that he felt responsible for me so much as he felt just this overwhelming um, sense of burden that he he thought he was bringing to, to our family. Um, when we gave ourselves that space, we were able to come back and see each other as the new people that we were. But we couldn't do that if we had tried to just stay enmeshed that whole time. It feels counterintuitive right? That you might want space from somebody to, to actually become closer to them, but it was absolutely essential. And it's something that I, I want to talk about really directly, you know, in the context of sexual relationships, but in the context of all relationships um, and what it takes to, to stay in a relationship for a long period of time and to make it work. That space, that distance can be essential in finding a way back to each other. Yeah, let's segue into into these tips that you have. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and it's so so important to, that we talk about this openly because there's this mythology around the caregiver. First of all, the caregiver has no needs; certainly has no sexual needs. Like, how right. dare you even think about it? And then the fact that you might there be might be this you know, a transformation in the person, your partner, and that that would affect you, affect Eros. Like you're not supposed to talk about that. I know when, when, when Kurt, after his surgery, you, you know, he was very, very frail and, and, you know, his tush kind of disappeared. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, I, one of the and things I love, I, right, I, I right? love my husband's ass, you know, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people do have an affinity, you know, for their partner's tush. And I'm just like, where's my husband's ass? Like, you know, <laughs> and, I mean, it's, and it's physical changes and it's the way that my own vitality and health contrasted 
against his, you know, he was so emaciated when he came home from the hospital. He, he looked so different. And here I was, I just turned 30. I'm in the prime of my life. Yes. Instead of being able to enjoy it, I just feel that contrast in such an emphasized way that I feel alone in it. I feel like, you know, it's actually a curse because I don't have the space to experiment with it and I don't have the space to, or, you know, to enjoy it or find pleasure in it. I know, but I love the word experiment because unless we can acknowledge it, we can't find our way back. We can't find what are the strategies here? Because for some people that may be, you know, this person may not have, you know, a, a, a rehabilitation. And so we need to be able to to adjust and to find find the connection again find the the arousal find the right find the desire for this person in a new way but we can't do that if we're just like guilt ridden that we we ever had the thought like oh this is not the you know <laughs> the virile person i married shamed um just you know and these feelings eat you from the inside out you know you try to swallow them but that's not any kind of solution to it because you are just punishing yourself. And so that's, that's no way to live, but it's really common because caregivers feel like that is their job is to, to take that self-punishment on as part of, as part of the process of, of caring for another human. And it's, it's not, we really need to rewrite the narrative on that. We, we do. Okay. So let's move into the tips. So this is how to brave intimacy after trauma, tragedy, or change. So what's the, what's your first tip for us? Yes. So the first tip is, is the one that I learned from Dr. Perel, which is that distance is a key ingredient in desire. And, um, when it's lost one way you can get it back is by giving yourself space, right? And reattuning yourself to your own needs until you know what is happening with you, um, until you know what you need. I don't know that it's possible to, uh, to even be able to, to feel that loss or lack of desire, right. To even notice that it's there or to know how it might be possible to get it back. Um, and so However, that kind of space creation looks for people, I, I, I think it's going to be really different depending on, you know, what the challenge is. But it can be as simple as just setting really firm boundaries um, around your time and your interests and your hobbies, and then erasing that word selfish from your vocabulary. That's an immediate priority because, you know, anytime you start to feel that kind of lurking sense of guilt come back, you kind of automatically deny yourself of the very thing that you need. So selfish has got to go. Um, Space is good for not just the individual, but for for the relationship. So it could be, just to be clear, it could be an a night out with your friends, yeah, right? right, Or, yeah. or a, a day off or something, especially for people who might not have the ability to, you know, that they are really on call. And and I'll, I'll tell this, which I, I talk about in the book, you know, when TC got home from the hospital, it was after about three and a half months, um, you know, being in the hospital. And um, one of the first things that his parents offered was to watch our son so we could have a date night. And I was like, a date night? So I can sit in front of somebody who can't yet talk to me because <laughs> he was still, you know, um, very much at the beginning of his process of regaining language. 
and so I could feel more lonely <laughs> with the added pressure of, you know, trying to force this mm. desire and this romantic relationship. That was like such a horrific thought to me. Um, and, and then it actually made me feel more guilty that my instinct was like, this sounds horrific. I don't want to do this. Um, and, and I had to start recognizing that, you know, when those feelings came up of like, oh, like more togetherness may not be the solution here to, to the intimacy mm. that I feel is missing. For me, I was really lucky to step away for a, a period of almost a month and, um, and travel and, and take a, a yoga training in, in Greece where I spent days with incredible women who became lifelong friends. And I rebuilt myself during that month so that I could come back in order to be a partner again. And it, and it worked. It, um, it absolutely worked. And I continued to do that in, in less drastic ways. But when I feel myself approaching that point again, I recognize that it, it is time for me to take that space and to rebuild myself before I come back. Really fantastic. Yeah, such fantastic advice. What's the next tip you have? The, the second tip is that living in your body is a, a multi-sensory experience. A lot of us don't realize after a traumatic event that, um, you know, we, we've entered this like fight or flight, you know, experience physiologically in our bodies with our central nervous system, and that it's really hard to get out of that place. And often by the time that you've kind of fatigued and you're out of adrenaline, you're not actually going to a rest place after that. It's not like you're returning to the rest space. What you've actually just done is gone numb. You've, you've used up all of your adrenaline. You've used up all of your emotional resources. And so you start to numb out. Um, and so you numb yourself to, to touch, to taste, to feeling, to all, you know, to all of the senses. But it's so subtle you know, at first that you don't notice that that's what happens. And so for me, going to Greece was this full body awakening and a reopening. I could taste food again. I could feel sun. I could drink water and, and feel the hydration of my body. And these sound like really simple things, but to be living in a full body experience is also the most arousing um, state of being, a state of aliveness. And that can only be good for relationships too. So I sometimes think it's just about going back to the things that we know are good for us they're the most simple things. They're the things that make us human, but we turn them off sometimes just in order to survive. Um, and we have to give ourselves permission to turn them back on. So great food and lots of time outdoors and walking for no reason, you know, not running marathons and fatiguing our bodies so we can be in great shape necessarily, but just for the pleasure of it. Um, that has been such a huge teacher in my life, just making sure that I stay in tune with those senses and that I keep them activated. I don't really know why I'm here on this planet if it is not to experience it through that lens, right? So I, I think it's just a natural instinct that we turn it off sometimes in order to, to, you know, grin and bear it and get through a difficult chapter as a lot of us have done, you know, over the last year, but it's also time to wake up and, and to give ourselves permission to experience it all. Yeah, I love that. And it's definitely having a relationship, a sensory experience, being able to experience pleasure in these everyday ways is definitely this prerequisite to being able to experience that in, a, in an intimate setting. So I, I love I love that as a, as a tip. And what's your third tip? The third tip is to stay open to receiving. And this is really tricky, I think, for anybody who has had the dynamic shifted in their relationship 
to the extent that it's made them just overly responsible. You know, after TC was injured, I, I went from like not having a very good knowledge of our finances or never having experience taking out the trash, you know, just these kind of little things that fell into his bucket of chores <laughs> as, you know, half of the relationship to, to learning how to handle it all myself. And I discovered in that process of learning how to do it all that it was actually really empowering to learn how to do it all and to feel so self-sufficient. I didn't expect that. I really enjoyed it. But as he began to get better and, and to be able to regain some of those abilities, I had to hand some of it back. And that was very difficult for me because I was clinging to this fear that if I gave him permission to help, if I opened myself up to receiving, I would get hurt again. He, something would happen. I would lose him. I'd have to be in that place again of feeling so alone and so heartbroken and having to take it back on. Um, and so I just, I just tried to do it all. I just tried to keep all of that intact so that I could feel the security of, of only needing myself. But that is not a way to do a marriage. <laughs> um, and what I learned quickly is that if I couldn't find a way to say to stay soft um, in some measure, to risk the vulnerability of allowing him back in to help, to take care of me, that uh, we weren't going to be able to survive. Our relationship wasn't going to be able to survive. You know, our intimacy with each other, it, it was predicated on this risk of, of just being open. And I think that's why relationships are hard in general, no matter who you are. You know, it is just such a risk of feeling alone again. And for me, I think, oh, being alone is my biggest fear. Um, and I think it's true for a lot of us. So I have had to train myself to pause, <laughs> to notice that instinct in myself. And, and I can feel it on a body level as a, as a yoga teacher. I, I feel myself going inward and, and to really kind of change even my posture and my body in order to allow myself to stay vulnerable and open to receiving. Um, it, there's also this narrative in our brains that we don't deserve that. Um, and I think certainly I have experienced this feeling of like, I'm just lucky enough that I got to experience another chance at life with, with the person that I love. I don't deserve anything more than that. But that's such a dangerous narrative, right? We really rob ourselves of the point of being here on this planet when we do that. So Stay open to receiving. It is your birthright and it is the path to joy. Um, and it is also scary. And that is a natural kind of reaction. It's a natural feeling to, to, to opening yourself up in a vulnerable way. That's so profound. So profound because caregiving can, so much is out of control when you're in a situation right. like that. And sometimes we really... We look for the control where we can, yes. and then we're like, don't harden us. <laughs> and it also, it hardens yeah. us, right? It, it hardens we love, us. we're loving hard in a, in a, in a way that doesn't allow us to, to seek what we need, right? Love hard and stay soft. And stay and soft. Hard to do, but, but that's oh my gosh. Right, yeah. oh, right. I want to end it there, Abby, because that love hard and stay soft, I think is so wise and so helpful. Thank you so much you, for coming on here. And I, uh, I can't wait to link to your book below and have people experience it, read it and, uh, and get to know you. Thank you All so right. much.
Thank you. 